morning, everyone. Why don't you open your Bibles to Luke 15. You can remain seated. We're going to start the sermon a little differently this morning. I want to introduce you to someone to be praying for. So turn your Bibles to Luke 15. So I'll try not to give you too many names, but a little background. I want to um, discuss a gentleman named Josh Thomas and invite you to be praying for him. And so the relationship with him is when I was candidating to come here, the elders had given me the name of another pastor, um, John Thomas, to serve as a reference. And so that's how my relationship with John Thomas began, and then I found out that we were supporting John's son. So John Thomas is a, is a local pastor, and we're supporting um, actually his daughter, Karina, and son-in-law, Andy. So you know Andy and Karina Smith. We've been supporting them for years. Andy and Karina have shared here many times. And so Karina's brother, um, John's son, Josh, was diagnosed with cancer. He has 10 children, and they're expecting their 11th child, and the cancer seems to be very aggressive. And I've been following, um, subscribed to receive the journal uh, entries or receive a notification when Josh's wife, Rebecca, provides another journal entry. And the second to last one, she seemed to have put off providing the entry, she said, because she was waiting for some good news, and there wasn't any good news. And so she knew she needed to provide an update, and so she provided that update. And then the update that she provided, I believe yesterday or the day before, uh, was more bad news and said that the cancer has spread. And she began the entry by talking about um, Christ carrying us and then transitioning into this discussion of Josh having to be carried up the stairs in their house. And so it just sounds like a a terrible situation thinking about this uh, father of 10 with children with an 11th on the way, uh, the cancer spreading through his body, the amount of pain that he's in. Rachel Dye happened to see him at the hospital, and she came back, and she just shared about how strong his faith was and what an encouragement it was for her to be able to um, interact with him. And so I want to invite you to be praying for Josh and his family. His wife's name is Rebecca, and I'm going to share. uh, We'll send out in the newsletter. I'll also send out in the newsletter of the journal. Um, Audrey will send out in the weekly newsletter, and I'll try to put in our Facebook group so you can sign up to the to receive the journal entries and follow his journey and, and um, be praying for them. And so again, his name is Josh, and I want to start the, the sermon by, by praying for them as well as the, the message. Father, we lift Josh up uh, for you. We've been praying for him as a family, and I would ask that as a, a church family, we'd be praying for him as well. Bring his name to mind for us. Uh, help us to picture how uh, devastating that would be as a family for um, a father of 10 children and what, the, what those children are going through and what Rebecca is going through as they're watching their father um, and, and husband experience this debilitating, painful cancer uh, spreading through his body. And so we pray for physical comfort for him. And we, uh, one of the most common requests seems to be about the, the pain that he's in, Lord, and we'd ask that could be alleviated. I thank you for what I've heard about the strength of his faith Uh, We ask that it would be maintained and that he would continue to have the wonderful testimony that he has despite what he's going through. Um, I pray for his wife, Rebecca's faith and strength as well, mentally, emotionally, and and for their children. I'm sure they have many questions, and I suspect that it must be hard to answer them at times as they're watching this take place with their father, wondering why it's happening. And we would rely, lean on Romans 8, 28, Um, that you work all things together for good and are even able to work this together for good in the lives of the children, Lord, that you would use this to draw them to yourself and for them to be reminded that we live in a sinful, fallen world. We would pray for Josh to be healed. Lord, we we would ask that the treatment he's receiving would be effective and that the cancer would stop spreading and that you would extend his life, give him many wonderful years as a father 
uh, as a husband, as a son, and as a brother. And if that isn't what's in store, Lord, I, I would pray for the future and what would um, be entailed in the cancer uh, continuing, especially for Rebecca, for the children. Um, we would pray for continued strong faith for Josh, and I, I, it's a privilege to be able to lift him up in prayer and just to be able to follow um, this journey and see the testimony that he has been uh, through his relationship with Christ. I pray for this time in, uh, in your word now, Lord, as we look at the father of the prodigal son, I think one of the most unique windows into your heart and all of scripture. I've, I've just come to these passages each week concerned about doing justice to them, Lord, and would pray that by your grace I would so that you would receive the glory and honor you deserve and that your people here might come to know you in a, uh, a different or unique way than they have before as you revealed through this, this very powerful um, parable. Little else like it in all of Scripture, Lord. Use me as your vessel. I prayed for each person who would be here, that this would be the mess. You know what's going on in their lives and what they need to hear, and I pray that you would speak to them through your word, minister to each person uh, personally and individually, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. The title of this morning's sermon is The Prodigal Son's Father. The prodigal son's father. On Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse. We find ourselves in the middle of the parable of the prodigal son. We just started looking at the father. Um, During one of our recent family Bible studies, we talked about wisdom being compared with treasure in Scripture, especially in the book of Proverbs. We see wisdom being compared with treasure. For example, Proverbs 2 verse 4, seek wisdom like like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. Proverbs 3.15, wisdom is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. And I asked my children why they thought scripture would compare wisdom with treasures or with gold and silver, and they did come up with uh, the two right answers. So why do you think that scripture would compare wisdom with treasure or with gold and silver? It's precious. It's valuable, right? And then second, what do you have to do to find gold and silver? You have to search for it diligently. And it's the same with wisdom. The more sermons that I prepare, the more convinced I become that there are real treasures available in God's word if we will dig in and look for them. And there are different ways to approach God's word. I'm definitely not minimizing the beauty of reading along the surface or or a few chapters at a time. But there's a real benefit to digging in and unearthing some of those jewels that God has for us. One of the treasures that I discovered recently is associated with the background to the parable of the prodigal son. Let me say that one more time. One of the treasures that I found recently is associated with the background of the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, And a, a great parable to read on our own, but if we look into why Jesus preached this parable... I think we can be really blessed by some of the misconceptions about God that this parable dismissed or dismissed in Christ's day and still continues to dismiss in our day. So let me say that one more time. There are some misconceptions about God, God the Father in particular, that this parable does well dismissing in Christ's day and as well in our day. So when Jesus preached this parable, he shattered some of those common misconceptions about God. You could almost think of this parable uh, apologetically, as though it gives a defense against some of those common misconceptions that people could have about God the Father. 
We've already seen two of these misconceptions dismantled, and so I'm going to go ahead and briefly remind you of them. If you look with me in verse 1 of the chapter to see why Jesus preached all three of these parables, look at Luke 15, verse 1. Tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, and they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And the religious leaders were upset because sadly they... And many people in Jesus' day thought that God wanted to do nothing more than what with sinners? Punish them. Judge them. Cast them into hell. Unleash all of his wrath and fury against their sin, against them. They thought that he found the most joy in judging them and throwing them into hell. And so because of that, you can imagine how they're going to feel about Jesus not just eating, but it says receiving sinners, having uh, this fellowship with them. And so Jesus teaches these three parables in this chapter to show that what the Lord loves, nothing more than, is seeing sinners repent, that he finds the most joy from seeing sinners saved. So really, when Jesus preached these parables, do you see how they taught the exact opposite of the common thinking of the day? The common thinking is God wants to judge sinners. That's what brings him the most joy. Jesus preaches these parables to show that God receives the most joy from not seeing sinners judged, but saved. The second misconception that Jesus destroyed with this parable, look in verse 18. The prodigal son said, I'll arise and I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And this son's thinking also captured one of the misconceptions of the day associated with the father that you'd better approach him ultra-cautiously. You better know exactly what you're going to say. If you sin badly enough, you are no longer worthy to be identified as one of God's children. And if you repent and you turn back to God and the father is willing to receive you, He will not be receiving you as a son or daughter. Instead, he will be receiving you as what? A slave. You're you're going to spend the rest of your life working off that sin that you've committed. You can have a relationship with the Lord, but it won't be as a son or daughter. It'll be a servant or slave as you spend the rest of your days serving God in, uh, in penance, in a sense, for the sins that you've committed. Jesus preaches this parable to show that this thinking is wrong. And we know this from Hebrews 4.16, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace where we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Now for this morning, I want to show you the third misconception that this parable ends up shattering, but it's going to involve us looking at a couple verses in Acts 17. So mark your spot in Luke 15. Turn two books to the right, so Luke, um, John, and then the book of Acts, Acts 17. So we can do some digging into scripture to unearth some of these treasures. Acts 17, this is Paul's famous preaching at Mars Hill. Verse 16, it says, while Paul, so Acts 17, 16, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, this is interesting to me, and to be candid with you, particularly convicting. Paul looks around, and he sees all of this idolatry, 
And how does he feel as a result? He's provoked. He's burdened. He's upset and concerned about what he's seeing here. He's distressed for God. And if we love God, we should be distressed when people would worship idols instead of him. And he was also distressed for the people because he knew that they were on their way to hell. And if we know that there are people on their way to hell, or we know that there are people who are worshiping idols, we should be distressed for them too. Our spirits should be provoked. Look at verse 17. So Paul reasons with them in the synagogue and with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. And so when I look at Paul, I really get the impression that he is a man who was preaching all the time, in and out of season, right? The gospel never became unfashionable to him, regardless of the location or time he's going to be preaching. If it's in the synagogue, to the Jews, if it's in the marketplace every day, it says to those who happen to be there. So basically, if people were willing to listen, or probably even if people were not willing to listen, Paul was going to be preaching to them. And the verse begins with the word, so, or in the New King James, it says, therefore. And that connects, whenever we see therefore, we want to look and see what it's there for. And so it connects this verse with the previous verse. And so the idea is Paul is preaching the gospel in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day because his spirit had been provoked within him. So it's this burden that he has. Uh, it's this concern for God's glory and for the, the people's eternity, their salvation, that leads him in this evangelistic effort. It would not be very significant if Paul had this burden, but he didn't act on it, right? It would almost be worse if he had this burden, because to the person who knows what he ought to do but does not do it, it is sin. And so the application for us is if we're burdened for others, it should lead to action on our parts too, whether praying for people's salvation or praying for opportunities to be able to share the gospel with people. And so I'd ask you, is your spirit provoked within you? When you look at Paul's example here, is your spirit provoked when you know that people are not worshiping the God you love because you love that God and you want to see him worship, but also because you know that these people are engaging in behavior that's leading them toward a Christless eternity? We should be what 1 Peter 3.15 describes, which says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so I just ask you to think about that. Are all of us, as it says, prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us about our faith or asks us about the hope that we have in Christ? Are we ready to respond to them? According to this verse, we should be. Paul was, and, and it's a good example for us. So while Paul's going about this daily and probably nightly preaching, something truly amazing happened. He was noticed by the leading Athenian philosophers or uh, practically religious leaders of the day because their philosophy was, wasn't much more than a religion for many people. He gets noticed by them. Look at verse 18. It says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with Paul, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And then notice this. They took him and they brought him to the Areopagus and they said, Wait, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. And this is what you call an open door, right? 
when you get an invitation to go to the most prominent location of preaching to, to pagans uh, in your day, that is definitely an open door. And so Paul thinks he's just going to preach in the synagogues and in the marketplaces, fairly low-level places compared to the Areopagus. And then he finds out that God has something uh, you know, significantly better for him. He gets invited to preach here where he'll be addressing the leading experts of philosophy and religion. I suspect he would have been incredibly thrilled for this opportunity. Now, we read this because for this morning's sermon, I want you to notice the two groups who largely captured the view of God the Father in Paul and Jesus' day, and that is the Epicureans and the Stoics. Their philosophy or their religion largely is a reflection of the view we're thinking about God the Father in Paul and Jesus's day. In John 4, 24, Jesus said, God is spirit. John 1, 18 and 1 John 4, 12 says no one has ever seen God. So because nobody has ever seen God, we are forced to wonder what God is like. We're forced to wonder how he feels, what would please him, what would dis- or we could even wonder if he can be pleased or displeased. We can wonder what might anger him, or some people might even wonder if God could be angered. It wouldn't be too much to say that at least one of these groups, the Stoics, believed God would never be angry. I mean, that's what Stoic means, right? It means to be apathetic or to be indifferent. So because nobody has seen God and is left to fumble around in the dark— as Paul says later in this passage, associated with their view of God, if we operate independent of Scripture, our view of God is going to be largely shaped by our own thinking or by those people who would have some influence on us. Now, in Paul's day, there wouldn't be many people who were more influential than the Stoics and the Epicureans. These people were highly regarded because of their view of God or gods. And this brings us to lesson one. The first century thought God the Father was impersonal and stoic. The first century thought God the Father was impersonal and stoic. I want to briefly tell you about each of these groups because in understanding these two groups, we can understand the two most common views of God in Paul and Jesus' day or in the first century. The Epicureans believed in multiple gods— who were not involved in man's affairs. So they thought that gods would not want, gods plural, lowercase you, would not want any interaction with people. It would disturb their existence. Theologically speaking, the Epicureans were pantheists, which is to say that they thought God was uh, in everyone and in everything. So God is in that rock, he's in that tree, an animal is God, the sky is God, the sun is God, people are God. And so because of that, they didn't see God as a person, or let me say they didn't see God as a personal being. He is impersonal. He is not relational. You cannot know him personally. You cannot have a relationship with him. Now, when you read about the Stoics, what is the word that comes to mind? Stoic, right? Apathetic, indifferent, uncaring, not feeling. And the religion that these people followed was called Stoicism. And so they thought that logic controlled the universe. They placed thinking above feelings and emotions. And so the chief goal of life for them was to reach this place where you never experienced any pain 
or any pleasure you never felt anything and so they stress discipline virtue self-control they they preached a self-sufficiency where you're going to be completely unmoved by any circumstances or situations in your life essentially the less you can feel the better in fact the the perfect person would be the person who could experience the very worst things life could throw at them without feeling anything as a result so if people are going to follow that religion well then what are they going to think about a god that they worship that he would not feel anything he would not be emotional and this is this is foreign to us i mean the reason i wanted you to see this was i wanted you to understand that this is the background with which jesus preaches the parable of the prodigal son this is the thinking of the day this is how people viewed god the father when jesus comes on the scene and then preaches the parable of the prodigal son this is the backdrop that god the father is impersonal you cannot know him you cannot have a relationship with him he's unemotional he's detached from his creation he wants nothing to do with anyone and so when jesus preaches this can you see how it would have been like a bomb going off can you see how this would have completely shattered the misconception about god the father in christ's day and i believe that jesus wanted to reveal the heart of the father he wanted people to know that not only is god not like you think he's actually the opposite of what you think he is the opposite of what the leading philosophers or their supposed experts and i'm using that word loosely of the day were saying about god not only is he not close to that you need to think of the exact opposite of that to understand the heart of god and this brings us to lesson two the prodigal son's father part one feels deeply feels deeply The magnificent attribute of God that sets him apart from all idols and everything that would be man-made is that he is not indifferent or unfeeling. He is, in fact, emotional in that he has emotions and feelings. He is passionate. He's joyful. Uh, the parable of the prodigal son makes this abundantly clear for us. Listen to these beautiful verses describing God feeling deeply. Isaiah 62, 5, as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, and then listen to this, so shall your God rejoice over you. What causes a young man to rejoice more than the thought of his bride, right? but we're told here that that's how god rejoices over us zephaniah three seventeen, the lord your god he's in your midst a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness he'll quiet you with his love he will exult over you with loud singing i know i've mentioned this before uh maybe you've never thought of god singing or perhaps you never thought of him singing uh, over you but right here we're told that that's what he does you can bring so much joy to the heart of god the father he can break out in singing loudly over you spurgeon said think of the great jehovah singing can you imagine it is it possible to conceive of the deity breaking into a song father son and holy spirit together singing over the redeemed god is so happy in the love which he bears to his people that he breaks the eternal silence 
and sun and moon and stars with astonishment are able to hear God chanting a hymn of joy. Can you see how incredibly important this is for us to know about God? Can you see the paradigm shift that this can be for so many people? Because if they thought that God, I mean, it's bizarre, isn't it? But we would almost think that God creates us and somehow we feel more or better than he does. That he would create us, but somehow we're superior in terms of the relationships that we can have with people, in terms of the love that we have for people, in terms of the way that we feel things or experience joy. It's almost like we kind of look down on God and sort of pity him for not being able to have the joy we have or experience things as deeply or as well as we do. And so Jesus preaches this parable, and he wants us to understand how God feels, what God looks like. As far as what causes God joy or what causes God to rejoice, we know based on these parables it is sinners repenting. God longs to see sinners repent and be saved, and he rejoices when they do. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. John MacArthur wrote, from the fall of man to the consummation of all things, God has been and will be seeking to save sinners and rejoicing every time one sinner repents and is converted. Now, I want to introduce you to something, and then I'll explain its relationship to the parable. Anthropomorphism is kind of this uh, fancy-sounding word that refers to God looking like a man. It comes from two Greek words, anthropos, which means man, and morphe, which we'd, we'd recognize associated with the word morph or morphing, and it means form. It's almost ironic to discuss this in this morning's sermon, because if you remember from last Sunday's sermon, I said that we have the potential, having been made in God's image, to then project ourselves onto God and then to make him into our image. Anthropomorphism is not when man does that. Anthropomorphism is when God does that. So it is not okay for man to make God into his image, but it is okay when God wants to, in his efforts to help us understand him, personify himself through the pages of scripture or describe his characteristics or behavior or actions or feelings or emotions in human terms. For what reason? So we can understand him. So we can know him. Let me give you a few examples of anthropomorphism in scripture. Exodus 7.5 and Isaiah 23.11, it says that God stretched out his hand. Leviticus 20 verse 6 says that God sets his face against evil. Number 6.25 says he makes his face to shine on you. Deuteronomy 11 verse 12 says he keeps his eye on the land. Psalm 34.15 says the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, which if you were to take that literally, would sound as though he doesn't see the unrighteous, right? Isaiah 66.1 says the earth is God's footstool. Psalm 89 verse 10 says that God scattered his enemies with his strong arm. Psalm 113.6 says he stoops down to look on the heavens and earth. We also see anthropomorphism when God is described with human emotions. Genesis 6.6 says that he was sorry when he saw the wickedness of man on the face of the earth. It simply means, so you could look at the flood or consider 
the, that terrible judgment, one of the worst in all of human history, and wonder how God felt about it, and we're told that he was sorry. He was sorry that he had made man and had to judge all of these uh, unredeemed people. Exodus 20 verse 5 says that our God is a jealous God. Exodus 32 14 says that God changed his mind. Judges 2.18 says God was moved with pity. 1 Samuel 15.35 says that God was grieved that he had made Saul king. So this relates to the primary purpose of the Bible. For some people, it can be a paradigm shift to understand that the Bible is not primarily about them. It is very tempting to us because we believe we're the center of the universe. Uh, The sun is going to revolve around us, that we want to put ourselves into every story, into every account. We're always the hero. The Bible is not about us primarily. It is primarily about God, a revelation of him, and an incredible resource for us to understand what he's like, what pleases him, what displeases him, what blesses him, what causes him joy, what causes him uh, anger. One other approach that God takes in Scripture to help us know him is he presents himself as an earthly father. And there are primarily two accounts in Scripture that really stand out to me that allow us to see God as a father. And so God wants us to know what it was like for him to sacrifice his son. God wants us to know what it is like for him as a father, let me give you a hint, to sacrifice his son his only son, whom he loves. And so what does he do? He tells an earthly father, Abraham, you need to take your son, your only son, whom you love, echoing this New Testament language, so that we can see what God planned to do with his son 2,000 years after that account, right? And so when you're reading Genesis 22 and you're watching Abraham sacrifice Isaac, you know, generally in that account, people praise Abraham and his faith in doing what he did. But I think God wants us to put ourselves in Abraham's place and imagine what it was like for him to have to sacrifice his son, not so that we would better understand Abraham, but so that we would understand better what happened 2,000 years ago when God the Son hung on that cross. Now, I mention all that because God also wants us to know how he feels when sinners repent and return home. God wants us to know what goes on in his heart and how he feels when lost sinners repent and return home and we're given this dramatic illustration of what transpires with him through the parable of the prodigal son. Look with me in Luke 15, verse 20. You can turn back to Luke. We won't turn anyplace else. Luke 15, verse 20. It says, He arose, the prodigal son, he came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him and we have reached a truly incredible verse in scripture there are lots of verses uh, about god about uh, specific persons within the triune nature of god we have verses about god the father verses about god the holy spirit verses about god the son this is my personal favorite verse about god the father i was having a conversation 
with someone the other day about how our familiarity with certain things can cause us to view things differently. Have you ever noticed that once you buy a certain car, you happen to notice all those cars, right? Um, if you do something as a profession, you're going to tend to interact with things differently um, that have something to do with your profession. Like, for example, Carl. He's going to look at blueprints definitely than I am. He's going to look at plans differently than I am. He's going to have an appreciation for them that I don't. Dave's, Dave Zumsen is probably going to look at welds in metal or machines differently than me or other men. Uh, Jim's going to walk on a farm, and he's going to look at that farm differently than other people look at that farm, definitely differently than the way I look at a farm because I didn't have the best experience on one uh, years ago. DJ, my brother-in-law, is going to watch people work out, and he's going to look at them working out differently than other people watch them work out. He's probably going to judge their form and things like that, right? Okay, I'm telling all that because when I became a pastor, I primarily became a writer. I never aspired to be a writer, but I spend more time writing than doing almost anything else, whether it's emails or preparing sermons And because of that, it's caused me to look at writing differently, and it has caused me to have a greater appreciation for God's Word, and it has caused me to look at verses and just see the incredible depth that God can provide just through a few words or phrases. And I don't know if you've really ever been fascinated just by the beauty of God's Word and how much can be conjured up just in one verse or just in a few phrases, but this verse is so pregnant with beautiful imagery. We're going to, just to mine all of the treasures out of it, we're going to look at some of those phrases individually, look at them piece by piece, drawing your attention to certain parts. And first notice the words, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. And this brings us to the next part of lesson two. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. In the next part of lesson two, the prodigal son's father longs for his son's return. He longs for his son's return. Why did the father see the son when the son was a long way off? What imagery is created? That the father's looking, that he's waiting that he's longing, that he, he might very well go out every single day searching that road to see if his son is coming home, looking at the distant horizon for, you know, for any hint of his son's appearance as he longs in his heart to see him again. He looks more diligently for his son than in the first parable, the shepherd looks for his sheep, or in the second parable, that woman lo- looks for her lost coin. And then when the father finally sees him, it says he ran to him. And I don't want you to just, don't just read this. Please do your, don't do yourself a disservice. Don't shortchange yourself the beauty of this parable and just read and say, oh, he ran to him. Picture this. Imagine what this was like for this father to be going out every day looking for his son and then to finally see him and then the joy that surfaced in his father's heart and then he rushes toward his son, cannot even wait for him to get home. That's how much he longed to see him. And it shows a side of God the Father that we might not see any place else in Scripture, because how is God the Father typically presented? Slow, patient, waiting. I was even having a conversation with Katie, and I almost, I didn't want to become irreverent, Because we're told not to be anxious. 
in Philippians 4. Now, I'm not going to accuse God of wrongdoing here and say that he was anxious, but I will at least say that God was what here? He was excited. He was thrilled to see his son and to be able to run to him like this. Now, I told you when we began this parable that there were different things that Jesus said that would have shocked his listeners. And the main reason that Jesus' listeners would have been shocked was because they had a wrong view of God the Father. If they understood his heart, they wouldn't have been shocked by these things. And so the first shock I shared with you was when the son asked for his inheritance, and all of Jesus' listeners would have expected the father to slap his son across the face, disown him, announce his death, and then uh, him being dead to the family, and then hold this funeral for him. The second thing that would have shocked Jesus' listeners as he told this parable was him saying that this father runs toward his son because guess what honorable, dignified men, especially wealthy landowners like this man, did not do in Christ's day. They did not run like this. They did not gather up their robes and scamper along towards someone or something. A father like this or a man like this who's wealthy and respected and prominent says, you come to me. I don't go to you, and I definitely don't run to you. You run to me. But this is what the father does here, and it would have shocked Jesus' listeners. He was willing to break the cultural norms about how an honorable, dignified father would act because of his excitement. He is not ashamed to gather up his robes and then to race toward his son like this. Next, look at the words, embraced him and kissed him. This is another part of the parable that definitely would have shocked Jesus' listeners because another thing that an honorable, dignified man would not do is he would not embrace his rebellious son and lavish him with kisses. Now just think about something for a moment. This son is coming home because of how badly things have been for him. He's starving. He's hungry for the food the pigs are eating. That's how bad things are. He has been feeding pigs for a living. If he can't afford food, he can't afford to change of clothes. If he can't afford food, he can't afford a shower, right? So when he comes home, how does he look? How does he smell? He's covered in pig slop. He is filthy. He is stinking. And there is no concern from the father whatsoever associated with grabbing that son, sweeping him up in his arms, and just profusely kissing him, which is what the Greek tense of the word tells us. And this brings us to the next part of lesson two. The prodigal son's father, part three, is affectionate. The prodigal son's father, part three, is affectionate. The Greek word for embraced, it literally means that the father fell on the son's neck. Now, my understanding is when this son came back, here's what would have happened. Here's how this would look. A son coming back in this, under these circumstances, gets close to his father, but while his father is still some distance away, the son falls on his belly, and he crawls toward his father, just reaching out to be able to grab what part? His feet, and to kiss them. The father prevents this. He doesn't let his son collapse in front of him. 
he runs up and he grabs him he throws his arms around him and he begins to kiss him profusely the father prevented his son from falling on the ground and grabbing his feet he's kissing his son probably on the cheek or the forehead the greek word for kiss it's cataphileo like you probably recognize the word phileo in there brotherly love or brotherly affection like the word the name uh, philadelphia the the city of brotherly love and so this is cataphileo henry morris said that the tense of the greek word indicates that he repeatedly kissed his son repeatedly so in thinking about what this was like and any kissing of my sons that i do in my life so i have my son george who's going to be uh, one year old soon i believe i'll kiss him profusely my oldest sons ricky and johnny are 13 and 11 i kiss them but i kiss them differently than i kiss george i don't kiss them profusely like i kiss like i kiss george i'm not sure whether ricky and johnny are would probably they're probably happy about that that i don't kiss them as profusely as i kiss george but the fact is you're going to kiss your baby son differently than you're going to kiss your oldest sons a couple months ago i was at this conference out east and there was a friend that i've known a few years who drove a couple hours to see me and when we parted ways he gave me this very intense hug that was the first thing that stood out to me was that he was not letting go he's just holding me very intensely and then he started kissing me and it occurred to me that this is probably the only time i can think of uh, that i have been kissed by another man besides my dad or my sons now my suspicion is when this man was kissing me i don't know if i'd say profusely but at least a few times he was probably was holding to a literal interpretation of second corinthians 13 12 where it says to greet one another with a holy kiss so my whole point in sharing this was i recognized the intimacy of of this situation and just considered what it would have been like for this father to be repeatedly profusely kissing his son like this picturing a grown man repeatedly kissing his son is a very intimate scene a very dramatic scene demonstrating the father's affection for his son now what application i mean we can talk about all this but we know as i read earlier that god is spirit we don't interact with him physically and so what application does this have for us even christ himself when god took on became a man in the person of jesus christ took on flesh he ascended to heaven we don't interact with christ physically so what are we to take from this well i believe it communicates god's tender affection toward us and how much he loves us the application for us isn't that we would look at this and then expect to be physically kissed by god but we would look at this and understand that this is the affection that he has for us that he loves us this deeply he loves us this intimately he loves us this personally and do you see how this would have shattered those perceptions that people would have had of god in christ's day now if you're a parent you probably understand this we have children uh, no matter how much your children might rebel no matter how terrible they might act toward you no matter what cruel things your children could ever say to you no matter how much they could disappoint you or hurt you what can you never stop doing with your children you can never stop loving them it's unfathomable that parents wouldn't love their children no matter how terrible they might act you can never imagine wanting to do anything other than holding and kissing and being affectionate with your children now i stress that because that's how we feel as fallen sinful selfish people who can be loving god is perfect and it doesn't just say that he is loving it says that he what 
is love. That's a world of difference. We can be loving, but God is love. He has objects that he sets his love on. Because God is love, he wants objects for his love. Make sure you understand why God created you and make sure you're not, you're not wrong in that understanding. God did not create you because he was lonely. He was not insufficient or inadequate, but he is love and he wanted objects of love. And so he has a creation, us, that he can set his affection on. You're an object of God's love. And this parable is to reveal how God feels toward you, that this is the affection that he has for you, that he loves you this deeply, that he feels toward you this way. If you were to be in rebellion and, and sin against him and repent and return, this is how he would want to respond to you. The last part of lesson two, the prodigal son's father part four doesn't force. The prodigal son's father part four doesn't force. Something that stood out to me is the son has not even apologized yet. He has not even said sorry. Do you remember the son rehearsed what he wanted to say to his father? He ha- those words haven't even been uttered by him yet. He gets this response from his father before he can even make his confession to his father. So you might circle Luke fifteen twenty. It's one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture. If you're ever discouraged or questioning God's love or affection for you, go to this place in Scripture, read this verse, memorize it, remind yourself that this is what God the Father wants to do with us. And here's the other thing to remember. Here's what makes this verse particularly beautiful. If God was acting this way toward a son who had been obedient or behaved well, would that be particularly encouraging? Not to me. I, would not, I don't get a whole lot of encouragement if I was to read about God's love for Daniel. I mean, I'm thankful God loves Daniel, but I've sinned too much to project myself on Daniel. I have sinned too much for God's love to be conditional on me being as obedient as Daniel was. I want to read about how God acts toward repentant sinners who've been as bad as the prodigal son because that can encourage me. And that's what makes this so beautiful is this is not the father's affection for this wonderful, perfect child. This is his affection toward that son who has returned from a life of rebellious, sexual, moral living. We will never sin in a manner that makes God want anything other than to have us return so that he can run to us, embrace us, and lavish us with kisses. But there is a limit that I wanted to mention. There is a limit. As much as the father wanted to see his son return, and you can tell how much he wanted to see his son return, what did the father not do? He didn't force his son to return. He didn't go out and grab him around the collar and drag him home. The father didn't go out to all the Gentile towns and with all the money he has, start paying people and say, hey, keep an eye out for my son. Let me know if you find him, if you heard anything. This is what he looks like. He's about this tall. I gave him this inheritance. Have you heard any reports about him? I'll give you some more money if you can tell me where he is or what he's doing. Instead, he waited. So do you see how there was a limit on the father's love? He didn't control. He did not force. And I'll briefly address the parents here because as my children are getting older, this is something I reflect on frequently. Just as the father did not force his son to repent, 
what can we not do as parents? We cannot force our children to repent. Just as this father couldn't force his son to be saved, we cannot force our children to be saved. We might be able to produce outward behavior or conformity or outward morality for a period of time, but our children's hearts are going to be revealed at some point. Even an ungodly teacher, even an unbelieving teacher, and I saw this many times when I was in the school system, can produce outward behavior or conformity to rules from ungodly students in a classroom so that those students don't get into trouble. But genuine repentance is born out of changed hearts. There is no amount of discipline that can save children. They must repent and put their faith in Christ. And all we can do is pray for that and preach the gospel to our children. So I want to conclude with this. Be encouraged that the Father wants us to repent. Be encouraged that the Father longs for us to repent. Be encouraged thinking about the Father even looking forward to that repentance from us. But understand that he will not force us to do so. He will rejoice when it happens, but he is not going to reach into our hearts and cause us to do this. Now, at this time, we have a baptism. After the baptism is concluded, please make sure that you uh, celebrate with Austin following his baptism. And I also want, want to let you know I'll be up front after service if there are any questions or any ways that I can pray with any of you. Father, I thank you for this time this morning and for this wonderful window into your heart and how you feel about repentance sinners. I pray we would take this with us. It wouldn't just be a sermon that we would hear and then just leave here in the church when we walk out those doors, but that we would regularly be reminded of how you feel toward us and what you desire to do with us following our repentance. Let us revisit this. I do feel like it's such a unique and wonderful chapter in Scripture. I pray, Lord, that if there's anything that I didn't say that you would have had me say, that you would even bring those things to mind for your children here, Lord. If there's anyone who's unsaved, uh, I, w- I wouldn't presume that every single person listening to my voice at this time is a believer. I do pray, Lord, that they would recognize your heart for them to repent and be saved, and that they would be convicted about their sin and see their need for Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.